Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim. And greetings again, everybody. It's so good to have the Dagenharts back with us. Former members of Cornerstone, Julie and Tyler, JP and Allie and Ethan. My goodness, what a fast-growing bunch of kids. And they're beautiful. And it's good to have you all back. And it's just uh, wonderful at homecoming to have folks come back and worship with us on this special occasion. You know, um, another note I, I need to say... Um, I meant to uh, include this in the announcements. This uh, Wednesday, we'll be having a joint meeting of the two home groups that normally would meet in Betsy Wiles' home and, and then Cindy and Charlie's home. We're going to meet here at the church in the chapel. Um, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association has just released his latest message entitled Heaven. And, and this is, re- this is related to the My Hope America campaign that the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association will, uh, is, uh, doing each year to, to reach out to Americans to bring them to know Jesus Christ. Now, I'm really looking forward to this because we don't know how many more messages we'll hear from Dr. Billy Graham. This is on the, uh, they time it at the same week of his birthday. And, uh, for those of you that have been following, uh, this great evangelist, this, this week he'll be celebrating, I believe, his 96th uh, birthday, and so uh, I'm looking forward to hearing the message and watching that, and uh, and and we'll be showing that also with the companions uh, Wednesday morning for our senior adults that are wondering, uh, can I see that too? So Wednesday night, if you'd like to come, anybody's welcome to come, and uh, we'll be doing that instead of the home groups this week. Okay. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles not to Acts chapter 14 as our worship guide indicates. It was not a typo on anybody's part. It was just God leading me in a different direction this morning. I'm going to ask you to be turning in your Bible over to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. And as you're making your way over to Luke chapter 19, a very familiar passage there, I'll just share this out of, out of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Gospel of John, rather, chapter 14, where Jesus the night prior to his crucifixion and that last supper with the disciples and and as he's sharing with them the news of his his uh his soon coming uh, arrest uh his death uh his resurrection and of course they're deeply saddened in their hearts the thought of losing this master who they've walked with now for 3 years plus and have grown so close to and dependent upon and now he's saying he's going to die and so you can just imagine the emotional trauma that they're going through and, and, and spiritually trying to sort all that out. And, and Jesus gives them these words that you're very familiar with. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You who believe in God, believe also in me. For in my Father's house are many rooms or abiding places. If it were not so, I, I would have told you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I remember sitting in a pastor's conference, this is several years ago, pastor's conference where the Southern Baptist Convention normally meets prior to the Southern Baptist Convention. This was in the city of New Orleans. I think we were in the Superdome that evening, and uh, and uh, the guest speaker was uh, Dr. Bailey Smith, a former pastor um, 
Uh, also a popular evangelist in Southern Baptist circles. Dr. Bailey Smith also served as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And I remember as he was preaching that night, he told a story about a pastor that was greeting his congregation as everybody was leaving after the morning worship service. And and so people were filing by. He noticed this little boy that was always there and, and chipper and everything. But this day he was downcast and seemed to be dejected and sad. And so the pastor was a little bit concerned. And so he asked the little boy, he said, son, so why are you sad? And he went on to proceed to tell the pastor how his dog had died the day before. And the pastor, you know, trying to be pastoral, I guess, and trying to find some solace to offer this young man. He said, well, you know, cheer up, cheer up. Maybe your dog is in heaven. And the little boy looked up puzzled at his pastor and says, what would God want with a dead dog? (laughs) That's just like kids. But, well, Dr. Bailey Smith went on to take that point and press on it a little bit as it relates to Christianity and as it relates to the church. And he asked us as pastors, he says, what in the world would God do What reason would he have for a spiritually dead person, a spiritually dead Christian in heaven? And that's a bit of an oxymoron because a Christian is not spiritually dead. If you're spiritually dead, you're not a Christian. But he goes on to push that point to say, you know, what use does God have for a spiritually dead Christian in heaven, or for that matter, a spiritually dead church in his kingdom? You know... In this opening passage that I just quoted out of John 14 that's so familiar and so comforting to so many of us as we think about heaven. You know, the statistics on death are pretty convincing. A hundred percent of the people born will die unless Jesus comes in the rapture. And so the question that every individual ought to continually strive to resolve in our hearts is, when I die... Where will my soul spend eternity? And the Bible is very clear. There are only two options. In heaven, in the presence of God, in the splendor of all the greatness and beauty and and, and the activity and the dynamic presence of the glory of God, or condemned to judgment in a place called hell. You know, I'm convinced that with that in mind, the adversary, the devil, has been doing a bang-up job in this world of convincing many people in this world that just about everybody's going to go to heaven. Don't sweat it. Particularly if you're listening to some of the TV gurus like Oprah Winfrey and some of those that would have you to believe that it doesn't matter which religion you follow. The fact is, as long as you're somewhat religious, you know, you're going to end up there at heaven anyway. Don't get uptight. Or if I think about the number of people that have fallen prey to the the satanic publications of people claiming to have died and gone to heaven and come back with a great message. And listen, if you own one of these books, do yourself and your neighbors and the world a favor. Burn it. It's nothing but a tool from Satan. Listen, there's only one authoritative word on heaven. It is the word of God. And if God felt like we needed to know more than what the Bible tells us about heaven then I guarantee you he would have indicated that. There's only one source when it comes to the subject of heaven, and that is the Bible, the Word of God, the infallible, inerrant Word of God. And so as we briefly look at the Word of God today, I want to challenge each of us to honestly ask ourselves, honestly, 
Where will I spend eternity when I die? Not based upon the world, not based upon the popular trends or what's politically correct, but based upon what the Word of God teaches. You say, well, that's not something I think about a lot, preacher. I really don't like to deal, delve into stuff like that. Well, you ought to. You ought to. Because the Bible is very clear that all of us are in need of salvation. All of us are in need of God's way to heaven, Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Scripture says before you rule out and say, well, no, I don't, I don't need this. This is not for me. <laughs> yes, it is. You understand the Bible says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there's none righteous, not one. And in verse 23, it says, for we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Paul says in chapter 6, Verse 23 of Romans, he says, And the penalty of sin for everyone is death, separation eternally from God in a place of judgment God created, designed for the devil and the demons. Death, eternal separation. But he says, but the gift of God. And grab that word, don't lose that. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul goes on in chapter 10 and verse 9 and 10 to say, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe, and I emphasize the word believe, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. And finally in verse 13 of that same chapter, Paul says, whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I ask you this morning, we think about homecoming. It's always a great time whenever you go away from your physical home, you've been away for a while and you get homesick and you look forward to coming home. I don't know, we've got some college students, you know, and some of them are a little further from home than others. Or maybe members that have served in the military or some of us that have gone on missions trips and you're a good distance away from home. You know, there's nothing like that feeling that you have long and in your heart. I, you know, I'm enjoying what I'm doing. I'm committed to what I'm doing, but I can't wait to get home. And, and I think homecoming for churches is a time to look forward to coming back to our home church where God started working in our lives and maybe God calls us to another church or another field of ministry or whatever, but it's something about coming back to your, 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 your church roots. But I want you to take a, a good look at the fact that, that God calls us home. He's issued a call in His Word to, to those whom He has uh, chosen to come home. And as Christians, home for us is heaven. There ought to be a spiritual longing in the heart of every one of us to, to be able to be in the presence of the Lord. And that longing is, is God-given. So I want to talk to you about those who are genuinely saved and, and how we enter into the splendors of heaven in three basic ways, and we'll be looking at Luke 19, the passage I've asked you to turn to this morning in a very familiar story. I want you to understand that those who are genuinely saved, true Christians, first of all, are the called. Those who are called to salvation. Let's take a look at this. Luke chapter 19. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a, a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. 
And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short of short stature. I can relate to that. I hate it when I'm sitting in a movie theater or sitting in a concert or at a program or something. And, you know, I got my perfect beeline on the speaker podium, on the screen. And no offense, tall guys. There's always the guys that are about seven foot twelve, you know, or something that you know, sit right in front of me. And, I, you know, and, I'm, I, I, and every time I do that, I say, dummy, why didn't you go sit on the front row? Then you can see everything. But it's just hard for us Baptists to make our way that close to the front, isn't it? <laughs> Here's Zacchaeus. He's a, he's a relatively short man. So he, he runs in verse 4 ahead and he climbs up into a sycamore tree to see him, see Jesus. For he was going to pass that way. In verse 5, and, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. And I submit to you this morning that, that I don't think Jesus was surprised. I don't think he was riding along and looked up and said, Oh, look at that short man up there. No, no. He, he knew. This was a divine, this was a divine appointment, you all. Jesus knew exactly who Zacchaeus was. He knew exactly what Zacchaeus needed. He knew exactly where Zacchaeus would be. And he knew exactly what God the Father had in store for this tax collector that day. This was a divine appointment that we see unfolding right here before our eyes. You see, I believe that unfortunately too, far too many people have been led to believe that as long as you're basically good, I mean, you know, you're not a thief and you're not a, a swindler and you're not, you know, out there uh, doing terrible, immoral things, that, you know, as long as you're basically good, you know, you're going to go to heaven. That's not what God's Word says. The world feels like, I believe, as you listen to the secular world and liberal Christianity today, the, those who don't really truly preach and practice the Word of God would have you to believe, don't get uptight about going to heaven because somehow, someway, everybody's going to get there. Or, if not everybody, the majority, the majority. But you know what? That's not what the Word of God says. That's not what God's Son taught on the matter about going to heaven. I wish you'd listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. This is what the Lord said. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. You know, when Pastor Tim and Pastor Chad and myself, was it just this past Monday? Good gracious time flies. Anyway, we drove up to a conference in D.C., just outside of Washington, D.C. I, I feel sorry for those people. Uh, you talk about a traffic nightmare. But anyway, here's my point. We're riding in on I-95, big interstate road, and, and we're, we're going in our direction with about four, maybe five lanes going the same way, bumper to bumper. This is on a Sunday afternoon, late Sunday afternoon. I thought, man, Monday is probably Monday morning. I wouldn't want to be here. Talk about road rage. 
But I noticed something interesting. Even though here we are, four or five lanes creeping along, jam-packed, you know, there was a lane just to our left. A couple lanes. It was more narrow than where we were, but, but cars are zing, zing. They were cruising along down the road. And finally, I asked the guys, I said, what, what's the deal? And they said, oh, that's the express pay lane. You pay money, and they'll give you an electronic key, that, or code that you can just zip off of that busy five lane or whatever into this cruising too, and you can move on. Wow. Jesus said the way to destruction, the way to hell, if you will, condemnation, He said it's broad, it's wide. And the vast majority of the people of the world are on that road. Some of them are atheists, some of them are agnostic, some of them are, are other world religions, some of them members of cults, but the fact is, there's a lot of people, there's all kinds of people, and they're just riding along. But he said the way to heaven, the way to eternal life, it's a different matter. It's a much more narrow way. There aren't nearly as many people on that road as there are are on the road to destruction. Now, why did the Lord say that? Because He wanted to tell people the truth. Satan and the world will constantly bombard our minds with the lie. Don't get uptight. You don't have to really give consideration to heaven. You're going to end up there some way. No, no, no. Jesus went on in that same chapter in verse 21, Matthew 7, 21, and He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That, dear friends, I believe is one of the most ominous verses in the Bible. That is the reason that Dr. Billy Graham once said that he believes the majority of people sitting in church pews from Sunday to Sunday are unregenerate. Unsaved. And many of them are deceived. I, I call to mind a popular slogan. I believe the Marines adopted this to promote their branch of service over all the other branches of services. And, and I think I got it right. You folks have been in the military. But, but the few, the proud, the Marines. As if to say, we're setting ourselves apart as somewhat of the elite. Well, let me tell you something. The Lord as much as said that among all the billions of the people on the face of the earth, since the dawning of history, relatively few will die and go to heaven. Then there's not a problem of overcrowding. There's plenty of room for everybody and then some in heaven. That's not the point. The point is that the Lord teaches us that there are relatively few people who will end up in heaven not, and many people who are on this earth thinking they're on their way to heaven are going to have a rude awakening for themselves when they breathe their last breath and their heart beats for the last time thinking that they're on their way to heaven and they won't be. You see, for those who are genuine Christians, authentic believers, we are chosen. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm not saying that we ought to have some kind of an elitist attitude. I'm just simply telling you the fact is, the Lord chooses those whom He will save. And I'll show you that. But just go back to the story of Zacchaeus for just a minute. Because here's Jesus riding into Jericho, and there are throngs of people along the street. 
waving, greeting them, saying you know all kinds of things. There all kind, there's a multitude of people. Jesus could have easily said, "Everybody, y'all all coming to heaven. I've come to town and I'm blessing you, and therefore y'all coming to heaven." Jesus stopped in front of one sycamore tree, looked upon one limb, and saw one short tax collector, and called his name. Jesus chose Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus didn't choose Jesus that day, not prior to Christ choosing him. And so I I want to share with you the the words of the Apostle Paul because he talks about this over in Ephesians in chapter 1. Listen to me. In chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. To the praise of the glory of His grace by which He has made us accepted in the Beloved. This clearly teaches that the Lord does the choosing. Jesus reemphasized that in in John's Gospel in chapter 6 and verse 44. He said, no one comes to me except the Father draw them to me. It's not just a random thing where you're just walking along and you decide you're going to get religious all of a sudden. Listen, if you are saved today, there ought to be nothing but praise and thanksgiving in your heart because God Almighty, Father in Heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, His Holy Spirit, chose to extend to you the privilege of salvation. Jesus said this to His own disciples. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 16, He told them, He said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And appointed you that you would go out and bear fruit. And that your fruit will remain. That whatever you ask of the Father in my name. He told Peter, James, John. I I chose you. If you stop and think about the call of Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and James, and John. What were they doing? They were fishermen. They were working at their job. And and Jesus came to them and He says, Come and follow Me. He did the same thing to a tax collector by the name of Levi. We know him as Matthew, writer of the Gospel of Matthew. And this was the incident where you may recall where four dedicated, faithful friends had a paralyzed buddy who couldn't walk and they put him on a pallet and they carried him to this house where Jesus was teaching and, and they were going to take him for Jesus to heal but everybody was jammed in the house and there was a crowd around the house they couldn't get him in the house so what did they do? Being resourceful as they were and ingenious they took him up on the roof and they opened up the roof and they lowered him down in front of Jesus and, and what did Jesus do? Jesus forgave him of his sins but then Jesus also performed a, a, a mind-boggling miracle. He told him to get up, take his pallet, and walk. And I believe just outside of that house on his assigned corner, within earshot of what was going on in that house, was a tax collector by the name of Matthew who was hearing what was going on. If not, people were telling him and he 
then found himself looking face to face with this Jesus who said to him, Come and follow me. Jesus chooses those whom He will save. Even a, even a Christ-hating, Christian, per- persecuting zealot by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Jesus is not just out there looking for the people who are groomed and, and, and are religious and, and, and are, are absolutely moral and, and they are self-righteous. No, no, no. He's calling the ones whom, who God the Father, since the beginning of the dawn of time, chose to be His people and to reside in heaven with Him forever. And so contrary to what false world religions will teach you and me, it's not because man is so good. World religions will tell you that we can, we can earn our way to God. All we got to do are good works. And we can work our way into God's favor and hence be there in heaven. The Bible says no, no, no. In fact, Paul nails it down in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And not by works, lest any man should boast. Don't think that simply going around being a good person, doing good deeds occasionally, being benevolent at Christmas and at Easter, is going to get you God's favor and into heaven. There's only one way. And it's God's way, by grace, through faith, and faith alone in Christ Jesus. So, when we talk about those who can celebrate a homecoming in heaven, and and look forward to having the assurance of knowing that they're going to heaven, it's those who have been chosen, but also those who are convinced. Who are convinced. Who have been moved upon their heart by the Spirit of God. I would submit as I take you back to Luke's Gospel chapter 19. We left Zacchaeus up that sycamore tree. It makes me think about, I had a New Testament professor at seminary. And he came in one morning and he was telling us, he said, Fellas, he said, um, this past weekend... says, I was invited to speak at one of the local churches. And he says, you know, we're right in the... The climax of, of, of allergy season. And he said, I, t- I suffer terrible with hay fever. He says, I went over to, uh, Sunday night to preach at this little church. And he says, I, you know, my allergies were just raging. And so I was just filled. I just gobbled down a fistful of, you know, allergy medicine to try to get me through. And so I got there and, and, and said, I went ahead and I preached the, the message. And, and, and so he says, but then the next morning. You know, there's always those smart, elegant students that love to catch professors in a little bit of a, you know, a, a, a era. So this this cocky young seminarian comes into my office and said, "Oh, Doctor Tarbert, um, I was at the church last night where you preached and uh, said, um, did you realize that you had uh, Nicodemus up that tree?" Doctor Tarbert said he looked at that young man and said, "Fella, boy." As bad as I felt, it's a wonder I got anybody up that sycamore tree. We have Zacchaeus up the, up the sycamore tree. Jesus has called his attention. And in verse 5, Jesus went as far as it says. Zacchaeus called his name, said, Make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. 
Today, Zacchaeus, we are going to intersect. I am going to change your life. Now, I want you to look at verse 6. Was Zacchaeus convinced? He could have sat up on that limb and said, Eh, thanks but no thanks. I'll just wait up here till the parade's over and go back to uh, robbing from people as a tax collector. No, verse 6 says he was convinced. How do we know that? He made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when we are chosen by God, the Spirit of God will move upon our heart in a convincing manner. It won't just be because somebody is pressuring you to pray some prayer and sign some church card and, and, and be a member of the church. It'll be because God moves on your heart in an authentic way and you will realize, number one, that you're lost. You're absolutely lost. You're desperate. Because you realize there's no way for you to get to heaven on your own. And you realize you've been convinced that Jesus Christ is not just a religious leader. He is the Son of God. He is the sacrificial Lamb of God. He indeed was crucified on that cross for the sins of all of mankind who would believe upon Him. His precious sinless blood was shed for our sins to pay the penalty for our sins. And that He was resurrected on the third day. And because of that, those who believe upon Him will also share in eternal life. Now, were the disciples, the early followers of Christ, convinced? Yes, they were. Because I know in Luke's Luke's Gospel early in chapter 5, where Jesus was approaching James and Peter and John and Andrew, they were fishermen, and it tells us in verses 1-7 through that Jesus walked up to them with their nets and their boats, and they had just been fishing all night long. And caught nothing. Nada. Not even a sardine. That would probably make Betsy and some of the rest of the crowd hungry. But that's just teasing because we were talking about sardines earlier. But but nothing. And here comes this preacher. Not a seasoned fisherman. And he walks up and says, let's go fishing. I don't blame Peter for saying, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've been out there all night, hadn't caught a thing. There's not a fish in the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus said, let's go. And so they humored him. Took the boats. Nets went back out. This time Jesus says, Stop. Now throw your nets up on this side of the boat. And without speaking a word, I believe the Son of God, Creator, the Sovereign Creator of all of creation, He spoke to fish in a language that said, Y'all come. And they hit the nets. Not just a few of them, not a handful of them. The Bible tells us that so many fish got caught up in those uh, disciples, in those uh, men's, fishermen's nets, that they began to heave them up almost to the point of pulling the boats down under the water. Listen, they've never seen a catch like that. How do you impress fishermen? You show them a miracle that they'd have to say, this man is not an ordinary man. In fact, Peter came to that acknowledgement and as they got back to the shore, Jesus encountered them again and says, Come, follow me. They were convinced. They were so convinced that we're told that those seasoned fishermen turned their back, they left their nets, their boats, their business and everything and followed Christ. They were convinced. He's got the truth. He's got the way. He's the real deal. 
And I believe the same thing for Matthew. And I think the same thing for all the other disciples. They were not only chosen by God, but they were also convinced by the powerful movement of the Spirit of God to place the faith in their hearts to believe that this indeed is the Son of God. And so we come to the point now where you say, okay, I believe, I believe Jesus, I I believe there was a Jesus. I'll give you this, I, I even believe that He was the Son of God. Now before you pat yourself on the back and feel so smug about that, could I just remind you that the devil believes? He believes in Jesus. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Out in the wilderness when Jesus was being tempted by Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan was, was as much to say, I know that you're the Christ. I know you're, it's no, that's no, I've known that for eons. And even the demons. So don't pat yourself on the back simply because you can say, oh, I believe in Jesus. Because there's a whole lot more to being a follower of Christ. An authentic believer. Not only are you chosen, chosen not only are you convinced But you are committed. Put your money where your mouth is. Or better still, put your life where your mouth is. How do we know Zacchaeus became a believer? He was chosen. Jesus called his name, told him to come down and make haste. That phrase still causes me to have shivers as a, because when I was a young man, boy, growing up on the farm, my maternal grandfather, we called him Granddaddy Jim. He was very a good, godly man, but he was also a disciplinarian. So when we would get out of, out, of, out of line, his favorite saying was, come down, Zacchaeus. Well, there's plenty of times I'd be up in the hayloft and Zacchaeus didn't want to come down. Because I knew he was not going to give me a honey bun and a, and a, and a cola. Uh-uh. But, but anyway, going back, you know, Jesus said, come down, Zacchaeus. What did Zacchaeus do? He was convinced. He came down. He didn't just kind of slide down. He made haste, dropped out of that sycamore tree, took Jesus to his house. And let me tell you something. I believe that that encounter caused Zacchaeus to commit himself in a way he'd never dreamed possible. Look at verse 8. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if, I, if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I'll restore fourfold. Look at Jesus' response. Because you see, he saw the commitment. He saw the commitment in this tax collector, former tax collector, I might add. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. Not by genetics, not because he was a Jew, not because he could trace his lineage back to Father Abraham, but because this tax collector who had been chosen by God, who was convinced of the reality of the nature of Christ and who he was, was suddenly chosen, uh, uh, made the decision he wanted to follow Christ. He committed his life to the Lord. That's a miracle, y'all. That's a miracle. It would be like one of the most crooked politicians in Washington or Raleigh. The one that everybody publicly knows is a scandal and out there engaged in all kinds of embezzlement and whatever. And all of a sudden, his life takes a 180 degree change. Suddenly he's out there giving to the poor. Suddenly he's out there unselfishly doing things for the public. He's out there telling the truth. He's promoting the truth no matter what the political cause. People will be looking and saying, what's going on? Did he have a stroke? 
So the radical has happened. That's what Christianity is. That's what it means to be a, a genuine follower of Christ because genuine faith leads to a commitment to change. Not just in, it's not just something we do, but it's what the Spirit of God does in us. That's why the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, he says, I am crucified with Christ. Now this is Paul who persecuted the church. This is Paul who was hunting down and killing Christians. This is Paul who breathed threats against the church. And now suddenly he says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. All the change that took place in the Apostle Paul came as a result of the Spirit of God coming into him by his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it changed his mind. It changed his priorities. It changed his perspective. It changed his whole goal in life. This man who hated Jesus What a terrible vengeance that was hunting down Christians and persecuting the church would say in Philippians 1.21. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Folks, that's a miracle. That's a miracle. It happened in Peter. It happened in Andrew. It happened in John. It happened in James. It's happened in thousands of people, millions of people down through the centuries. Why? Because they have been chosen by God, given the faith to receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ. They are convinced by that faith that Jesus indeed is the only way to heaven. And because of that genuine faith, they have made faith commitments. That have radically changed their lives. It changes their priorities. It changes their friends. It changes their social circles. It changes their habits. It changes their attitudes. And that's what it means. That's what it means to be a true believer. I'm closing. Your stomachs are growling. I'm going to go out on a limb because I believe this with all my heart. Only true believers go to heaven. Only true believers go to heaven. It's a sad day when a man, a woman, a young person, whether expectedly or unexpectedly, faces death. Thinking, thinking that they're going to slide on into heaven and everything's going to be just fine. And in the twinkling of an eye, faster than you bat your eye, their soul, their eternal soul, is immediately transported into the pits of hell. They know that's where they are because they have heard enough about it. They hear the screams of agonizing souls. They see nothing but pits darkness. They feel the pain that they can find no relief from. And all of a sudden, for the first time, they sense that there is no semblance of the presence of the grace and the mercy and the love of God. There's nothing but His wrath and there's nothing but His judgment. And suddenly their soul realizes in full consciousness, it's too late. It's too late. 
There's only one way to know for fact that when death comes your way, heaven will be your home. You know you're chosen. Your faith convinces you that Jesus Christ indeed is the Son of God, Savior of the world, who died for your sins, and you have totally, wholeheartedly committed yourself to Him to follow Him. Jesus says that not everyone who says to me, Lord, 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 I, I went to Bible school. But, but Lord, I made the decision I, when all my friends went up to the front. I, Lord, I signed the church. Lord, I was baptized. Lord, my name is on the roll of, of that church. Lord, I even gave some money to the Salvation Army at Christmas. Lord, I, I haven't hurt anybody out physically. I haven't robbed a bank. Lord, I, you know, and Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. What a sad, sad day. The funerals I dread. And I don't look forward to burying anybody. But I do have a great deal of peace and assurance when I am standing at the graveside of a person that I know bore fruit throughout their lives. That Jesus Christ was their Lord and Savior. They love coming to church to worship God. They love telling other people about Jesus. They cheerfully look for ways to sacrificially give to support God's kingdom. They, they enjoy doing things for the Lord. All the fruit was there. But the services I dread as a pastor is when I stand at the graveside of a loved one and I've asked the family, tell me about their faith. And the best they can say is, oh, well, Daddy, he was a good man, you know. Mama, Mama, she, she, she was kind to everybody and, oh, well, my teenager, oh, they were sweet. Everybody, they were popular at school and everybody liked them and they were so good. I do the service, but in my heart, my heart breaks. First for that lost soul, but then for their families. Oh, listen, dear friend, I'm looking forward to going home. I'm not talking about down here in Meadowlands, five miles away. The older I get, the more I think about heaven. And as that old song would say, I get a little homesick for heaven. And I know that I know that I know that when Charlie Martin breathes his last breath on this side of eternity, the next breath I take will be the fresh, invigorating air of heaven where I will live forever in the presence of God. That's not because I'm special. That's not because I'm any better than any of you. It's simply because I know by faith I'm chosen by God, convinced of the identity of His Son, my Savior Jesus Christ, and I committed myself to follow Christ. I had the spiritual experience 
You've heard my testimony. I grew up in a Christian home. I had a, I had a spiritual experience when I was about 10 years old. Went to church. That night we had a guest preacher, revival. I heard the message. A lot of my friends went forward. I felt a tugging in my heart. I went forward too. Told the preacher I wanted to be saved. And went through the motions. I was baptized in that little country church soon thereafter. And was thinking I was saved. My testimony has been revised based on the truth of God's Word. Because as I look back over my life as a teenager and going into my early adulthood into college, there was no evidence. I was chasing after the things of the world. I was satisfying the things of the flesh. If I was on trial for being a Christian, ladies and gentlemen, there would not be enough evidence to convict me as a follower of Christ. So when did you get saved, Charlie? I'll never forget, Jan came, we were at a service, and Jan came, because she was singing in the group, and she says, we're going to be parents. If that don't get your attention, you're going to be a daddy. Yes, Laurie, so don't look at me like you're confused, it was you. And suddenly, like a bolt out of heaven, the Lord came down upon my spirit and said, Okay, buddy, you made, you know that first step you took years ago? Are you ready to be serious? Are you ready now to follow me? And I'll never forget. I told Jan, I says, I'm going to choose from now on, and we are. We are going to follow Jesus Christ. We're going to raise our children. At that time I was thinking 12. Jan was thinking 2. She won. But regardless, we've got two of the best. But I know for a fact, at that moment is when my soul received Jesus Christ fully as my Lord and Savior. Jesus says in Luke 9.23, If any man come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That night, Jan and I decided to follow Jesus Christ. Now, we haven't been perfect. I'll tell you that right now. But I can stand here and say with confidence, we stepped out to follow after Jesus Christ and we have not looked back. And we're not turning back. Because we're going to follow Him right on into heaven. That's what I want for everybody. And I hope that's the case for you. But if not, I encourage you this morning to think about what I've just shared with you from God's Word. And that if God is speaking to your heart, it's a glorious thing. It's a wonderful thing. He may be making known to you this day that He is choosing you to be one of His followers That He wants you to dedicate your life. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a missionary. Just simply dedicate your life to following Him and being committed to Him. And experience the joy and the assurance of knowing that because He lives, we will live forever. Bow with me and pray.